get hugs today? If you're visiting, that's for our little ones, a little program that we have about once a month for them. I always wonder when, uh, when we say that, hugs, and someone's here for the first time, they wonder what that is. It's an acronym for something. <laughs> Helping, uh, help us grow strong. There we go. I, I knew it was something like that. <clears throat> So uh, turning turning your Bibles to First John chapter five, and if you look at the title there, my title is "This is Family." This is family. And as I was sitting there taking the Lord's Supper, I could hear the little ones. I heard a lot of little ones rejoicing and singing and whatever they were doing. And then I look out over the group and I see people in their 80s and maybe older. And I think about everyone in between. We have folks and little ones and older ones and everyone in between. And we're truly we're truly a family. And part of what we try and do here is to act like family. And we're going to look at that today. Uh, the, the I think this lesson is important, not because I'm presenting it, but because it's from God's word. And um, we I'm getting up a little late. And that's OK. We're family. If you have an appointment that you need to go to and I hadn't finished, go to it. <laughs> really, we're family. If you need to leave for any reason, it won't offend me. I've already I want to give you the tell you why I say that, because I've already cut out half of my sermon. And I'm going to save that for my next uh, sermon. And I made this as, as short as I possibly could, and it might be longer than it needs to be, but it's, it's all I can do. It, this passage is just absolutely amazing. In the context of it, we're talking about confident prayer. And we ask in, in, in our last lesson uh, where we saw if we ask anything, if we ask anything of God, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we ask him. An astonishing statement, an amazing statement. And I showed last time how that drives us again to this God-centered, this Christ-centered life. But the question comes up, if God is all-wise and he's all-knowing, and if our prayer is not answered in the way we think is best, then it's not what's best. And that's hard for us to understand. It's hard for us to really grasp that if we pray and ask for something, he says, if we, whatever we ask, we receive. And yet we don't see that we're getting what we ask. We wonder about, well, what's this passage saying? What is God doing? But part of this is the acceptance that we're not God, but that God is God. And in a sense, when I don't see my prayer answered the way I think is good and right, and I, in essence, complain, I'm telling God that I know what's good and right better than what he knows is good and right. And so I need to learn to accept his will, even when it doesn't seem right to accept that God is God. I, I received a, an email from Terry Mims. I want to read this little story. It's very short about a minister who was attending a men's prayer breakfast and he asked a farmer to say a prayer and says the farmer began his prayer like this. Lord, I hate buttermilk. 
preacher kind of opened an eye and thought, well, that's a strange way to start a prayer. Then the prayer farmer continued, Lord, I hate lard. And now he's starting to worry about asking this man to pray. He says, and Lord, you know, I don't care much for raw, raw flour. That's hard to say together. Raw, 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 R-A-W, flour. He was about to stop everything. The farmer continued, but Lord, when you mix them all together and bake them up, I do love those fresh biscuits. So, Lord, when things come up that we don't like, when life gets hard, when we don't we just don't understand what we're what you are saying to us. We just need to relax and wait till you're done fixing and probably it'll be better, something even better than biscuits. And that's really what that passage that we looked at last time is as we pray, we are asking what we think is best. But God knows what's best. And because God knows what's best, he's going to give us his best. I told you the story about when I was sitting on the back porch in New York. Back porch, rental house. I couldn't pay rent. Didn't, have, didn't know where the next meal was going to come from. Uh, was that without a job, was in desperate need. And how I felt that I had asked God for bread and he had given me a rock. After that lesson, my dad came up to me and he said, Why, I didn't know that. Why didn't you just ask me? <laughs> And I would have given it to you. And I said, well, part of the reason I didn't ask him is because we had moved and we weren't settled. We weren't sure where we're moving. We had moved to two different places. And my credit card, the one credit card I had, the bill was going to his house. And he wouldn't forward it to my house. So I knew any time that I needed a meal, I could go use my credit card. And my dad was paying the bill. So in a sense, I didn't have to ask. He was already taking care of a lot of Chinese food uh, while we were living in New York. But my earthly father would have given me for my present need. I have no doubt that if I would have asked him and said, I, I, I don't have rent. I, I'm sure he would have done that. But my heavenly father not only gives me for my present need, but he gives me for my eternal need. And that's where we mess up. We're asking for something specific right now for our present need. And God sees the bigger picture. He know he knew I needed to go through some sort of struggle in my life so that I would grow up a little more so that I would understand some things I needed to understand. And so as hard as that time was, it was good for me to go through that because my heavenly father knew that. And he said here he hears us. And this means he gives thoughtful attention to what he hears. He doesn't just hear our voice. God doesn't just hear our words like we do. You know, sometimes you're in a conversation with someone and you know they hear, hear your voice, but you know they're not listening to your words. And I, and I had some people acknowledge that and some people are hearing my voice <laughs> and not hearing my words. And so we know God doesn't do that. God doesn't go off to the Bahamas and then off in his mind somewhere else. Bahamas are good places. But he's not off somewhere else. He's listening to you. He's paying attention to what, he, what you have to say. And so he listens to us. He listens to our request. Now, <clears throat> excuse me. Let's read the context. We're going to look at verse 15, uh, 16 today. But I want to read verses 13 through 17 to kind of get us all in here. I write. <clears throat> boy, I got something in my throat. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. 
This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we ask of him. If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray and God will give him life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I am not saying that he should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin. And there is a, there is sin that does not lead to death. In this context here, we have, first of all, confidence in our eternal life. Verse 13. And we see how these are all going to wrap together. We have confidence in our eternal life. And this is connected to the confidence that we have in prayer. Just if you need to reread that in verse 14 and 15. And then that confidence is connected to our confidence in praying for our spiritual family. And that's where we're going to look at today. And this all loops around the, the book of First John. This is just circular. It keeps coming back around again and again. And he says this loops back to the beginning of the letter that answers the question, who are we? Who we are are people in fellowship with God and fellowship with one another. We're not going to read that passage, but it's the first four verses of, of, the, of the first John. Christianity is not an individual walk with God, but it's a community of believers. Those of the same blood who are concerned about our mutual joy. We, he says, I write this so that our joy may be complete. I have to tell you this. It's the Lord's Supper brand that's stuck in my throat. <clears throat> I usually don't like to drink water up here. But the juice didn't take care of it. <clears throat> I'm sorry. <clears throat> but now you know why <laughs> I'm struggling. <clears throat> All right. All right. Anyway, this leads back to our mutual joy for one another. Uh, John said here, I write this so that our joy may be complete, both his and both ours altogether. This walk that we have is a community of believers, same blood, mutual joy. We have this fellowship. And so when we come to verse 16 here, it answers the question, what do I do when I see a family member in sin or fall in sin? You see what I'm saying now? All right, we're praying. We're praying about ourselves, our walk with God, but it's us. It's our family together. And so the question comes is, I see a brother, he says, and this means a brother or sister, either one. I see a family member, a Christian family in sin. What do I do? And let me state as I, you know, you have to I sometimes have to say what I'm not saying, because sometimes we read into a strong statement more than needs to be there. But I once again, this letter was written not only for our joy to be complete, but the second purpose was so that we will not sin. I've said this over and over. We, we if you've been here, you know that we will not sin. But John is a realist. He doesn't say, I'm writing this so that you, you don't sin. And if you do, all oh, this is such a bad thing. I got more water. All right. I'm going to take care of this. He says, you so that you will not sin. John is a realist. He knows that sin is part of the Christian walk. Now, that's why I'm saying sin is part of the Christian walk, but we don't sin. All right. 
But John is real with us. And he says, if you walk in the light, verse 7, as he is in the, in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus continually cleanses us of our sins. That means we're sinning. All right. Not on purpose, not because we want to. We sin in spite of ourselves. And so John, in reality, he says, we know that's going to happen, but Jesus' blood will continually cleanse you of your sins. And then he goes on even more. He says that if we confess our sins, he is just. He will forgive us of our sins. And he's not saying that we we sit there and just say, okay, let me confess all my sins this week. I was talking to my parents about this and Claudia about this this week. And I was saying, uh, I can't remember all the sins that I've committed so I can confess them all. So if my confession is dependent on my forgiveness, there's a lot of sins I don't even know I've done. So I'm in trouble. This confession isn't me going through every little sin and saying, I did this, I did this, I did this, and I did this. What this is is saying, this word confess means I'm saying the same thing about my sins that God says about my sins. Whatever God says about my sins, that's what I agree with. I'm agreeing with it. And what does God say about my sins? He says, number one, you sin, recognize it. Number two, you need forgiveness and you need help. And I provide it through Jesus. And I say, amen. That's exactly right. Whether it's the little sins or the big sins, whatever they are, I recognize I am a sinner. I'm in need of forgiveness. I am in need of his help. And I go to him for help. And he provides it through Jesus. The answer to our sin problem is Christ-centric. We see it again. He says here, you pray, verse 16. If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray. And God will give him life. Look where the sinner is. And God will give him life. The question everyone wants to know, I know your mind's off here. You're looking at that and you're saying, what is the sin that leads to death? Aren't you asking that? What is the sin that leads to death? When we read that passage, he says it a couple of times here, and there is a sin that does not lead to death. And, I, and I'm not saying to pray for the sin that leads to death. That's the second half of this lesson. I, I don't have time to get there. We're going to get there next time. All right. I promise we'll get there. You will find out what the sin that leads to death is. Come back. But the reason I stopped here is because we're talking about family. Look at verse 16. Verse 16, the first part, if anyone sees his brother commit a sin. Are right, you going to see how my mind works? And I've shared this with you before. I, as I was meditating on this passage and looking at it, I saw this. If anyone sees his brother, we're talking about family here. This is our family. And sometimes, as I thought about this, sometimes we excuse our physical family where we don't excuse our spiritual family. Think about that. Often we give more grace and patience and prayer to a physical brother or sister than we will a spiritual brother or sister. And so what I'm trying to get us to look at is how we treat each other, our spiritual family, which is more important than our physical family. And sometimes we give grace to our physical family where we don't give grace to our spiritual family. And part of this is understandable. We can't feel for everyone. We can't feel the same for everyone. 
We don't have the capacity to do to do that. Psychologically, emotionally, physically, we're limited. We have a group of here around 300 or so here today. And it's, it's a chore to know everyone's name, just to know everyone's name. I don't think there's a person up here who get here and just go and name every single person in this room or every single person that's part of the family. We struggle with even knowing each other's names. You can't do it. It's too big. And the bigger you are, the harder that is. And so I can see that because we can't minister to each person, that there's a little bit of a separation. And so when I see someone sin that I really don't know, it's like, man, that person should change. That person needs to do something about it. And so I want us to examine ourselves. When a brother or sister falls, what is your first reaction? What's your first reaction when they sin? I can't believe that. What else do you expect of such a person? We need to rebuke that person, discipline that person, make an example of that person. If the brother is, is brother or sister, just a formality word formality. Is that is that a way? Is that a way we use? Is that a term that we use to avoid memorizing someone's name? You know what I mean by that? Sometimes we meet someone. And they're a brother or sister in Christ, and we can't remember their name. So we just, for, for the next 15 years, call them brother. <laughs> we don't even know their name. But we call them brother, sister. And it's just, you know, you ask someone, oh, what's their name? Well, I don't know. How long have they been here? 20 years. You know, so have I. But we don't know each other. And so sometimes we use this, 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 these titles rather than meaning this is my true family. Are we simply a group of people who have come to the same theological agreements over certain points? Or are we family? Are we a people who truly have the same father? Are we just people who share the same creed? Are we blood related? Are we simply comfortable with the same philosophy? John is saying here that we need to come to a realization in practice of what our relationship is to one another. We need to realize that we're family. What is your primary concern when a person falls into sin? Is it the purity of the church or the condition of the person? Do we have a love for that person? Or are we trying to pr protect the reputation of, of, of Central Church of Christ? Do we care about that person's joy or our personal feeling of how that person let us down? And I know this is not an either or. All right. So you don't read too much into what I'm saying here. I'm talking about your primary reaction. All those other things are important. We can go to scriptures on those. How it's important that we protect the church, etc. But I'm just saying, particularly as we see something in someone's life. Are we primarily concerned with that person? Are we primarily concerned with the institution that we're a part of? The purity of the person, I believe, has to be of utmost importance rather than the purity of the abstract church. We see this, and I, I thought about going to a lot of passages, but I'm not going to. It's just you read it. Jesus seems to have that focus on people. Yes, he was he talked to the large groups. He worked with the large groups. He had a concern about the groups, but his 
his when he lasered in on someone, it was it was a person. And you can read that all through how he worked with people. So we see a brother, it says here. Anyone who sees his brother commit a sin. What do you do? What do you do when you see a person commit a sin? He says here in the NIV, we pray. The word there really is ask. We ask. And that word is to beseech or to ask with urgency. And, I, and as, as I thought about that word, beseech, ask, beg with urgency. I thought, that's how I pray for myself. That's how I pray for me. When, when something is desperate in my situation, when something's hurting with me, when a loved one that's close to me, I, this is how I pray. I ask, I beseech, I beg with urgency. I do it over and over. That's my attitude as I pray. And he says, that's how you pray for one another. When you see a brother or a sister fall into sin, it's not like, oh, Lord, please bless them. It's an asking, it's a beseeching, it's an urgency. This person has fallen into sin. And I think, how quickly do I give up on myself? How quickly do I give up on those who are really close to me when I pray for them? Pray for others the same way. Pray for your rest of your family the same way. I don't just throw out a prayer and say, okay, I'm done with you. But it should be an asking and a beseeching over and over. Over in Galatians, it talks about this carrying of one another's burdens. He says, let me, let me just read this to you. Galatians 6, verse 2. Yeah, there it is. He says, um, carry each other's burdens. And in this way, you fulfill the law of Christ. And he's talking about love. And this word is a strong word. So it, it means carrying each other's heavy burdens. You know, I, I found this picture of Lauren Hardy or someone. I'm not sure who that is. Old time comedians. Carrying a piano. When I've had to move a piano, I never move it alone. You know, nah. You hurt yourself quick, even if you're young. You always get someone. This is something I cannot do. I can't do it by myself. I need help here. And so I go to someone else, and he says, when you see someone else carrying a burden they can't carry, you need to go and help them. You need to pray for them. You need to carry that burden with them. And then just a few verses later, I think in verse... Um, Four, is it? No, no, six, five, five. He says, and each one should carry his own load. Isn't that interesting? Carry one another's burden and each one should carry his own load. It's a different word, actually. And that's a, that word means carry your own backpack. Basically saying this, grow up, carry your own backpack. Don't ask other people to carry your backpack. There are certain things that you need to be responsible for. Grow up and get it done. Carry your own backpack. You know, there's been times that my children wanted me to carry something of theirs, and it's small. And I said, no, you carry your own. I got my own load. Let's carry, each person carry your own backpack. But there's certain loads that you can't carry by yourself. And so you need to do that together. Carry your own load, carry your own backpack, but help each other with the piano. And then he says, this is for anyone. If anyone sees this, there's something you see. Not the preacher points it out. You see this. You see someone in sin. This is not a time to call someone else. As a preacher, I've been asked to go and pray for someone. And sometimes I've asked, you know, why do you want me to go and pray? Well, because you're the preacher. As if my prayers are like God's not going to listen to your prayers. 
You know, he sits there and says, oh, well, I'm not going to listen to that until I hear the preacher come and pray to me. It, it doesn't make sense. And I know the Bible does say calling the elders to pray. I'm not saying we don't do that. But often we throw our responsibility off on someone else that we think is more spiritual. But he says there, if anyone, if anyone sees this, you need to not call someone in, but you need to pray for them. And what John is saying here, he's agreeing with Peter, in essence, where where Peter says, you are a royal priesthood. You are priests of God. You have access to God. You can speak to God. You have direct access. You beg God. You beseech him. You be urgent to him. And these are perceived sins. If anyone sees his brother in a sin, this is not sins of the heart. I'm not trying to find out what sins you are. I'm not being a busybody here. I'm not trying to read your motives and read your heart and try and figure this out. It's not talking about that. These are perceived sins. These are things that are obvious. So don't be a busybody. Don't get into people's business when you shouldn't get into their business. First Thessalonians talks about that. But the praying Christian sees something and he prays with confidence. The passage is full of confidence. You may know that you have eternal life, verse 13. This is the confidence that we have in in approaching God, verse 14. And we know that he hears us, verse 15. Pray and God will give him life. Confidence. What's the results? God will give him life. And again, this this centers back around to this God focus, this God centered, this Christ centric life that we're supposed to have. Sometimes I think I get in God's way. I say that tongue in cheek. I know I really don't. God can push me out of his way easily. But we approach God confidently with a request. We beseech him. We're asking him urgently. We bring a brother or sister in in sin before him. And then what do we do? We try and fix the problem. Surely there's something I have to do. Men are really good at this. I always want to fix things. And we see him, we pray, but then we want to fix the problem. How confident are we really in God? What does this passage say? And I'm looking at the passage. I'm not saying we don't get involved sometimes. But it says we ask and then God, John says, and he, God, will give him life. This is helping the prayer be focused on God. You see, if I pray and then fix your problem, then the, the temptation is for me to say, well, look what a good counselor I am. Look what a good Christian I am. Look what wonderful insights I've had. I helped this brother. I helped this sister. What the passage is saying, it says, but God will give him life. I want immediate results. I want immediate change. I want obvious repentance. And since I don't see it happening, I try and make it happen. Of course, the exception to that is... When it's me that has to change and when it's me that needs to see results in my life. I'm very patient with myself, not too patient with others. Again, don't read what I'm saying, what I'm not saying. There are times we do something. The Bible tells us that there are times where God will use you to accomplish his will in another person's life. But there's many times that I just need to pray And turn that over to God and wait on the Lord and let God grow that person 
and God mature that person while I simply just pray urgently for that person. And it takes a lot of wisdom to know the difference. I know that. It's a struggle. But notice what he says. And God will give life. This is not talking about a Christian who is lost. We talked a little bit about this in my Sunday morning class. This is not a person who became a Christian and now has left the Lord and they need to be resaved. I don't know how to say that. This person is, in effect, allowing sin to darken their life. They're allowing this is a Christian who is allowing his thoughts, uh, uh, ungodly thoughts to control his life, to direct his walk. We could say it's a walk in darkness. Let me put in parentheses here, not unto death. All right, we're going to get into that next time. But he says, this is a sin that's not unto death, but this is a sin that doesn't separate you from God, but it's a walk in darkness nevertheless. If you'll go to chapter 2 and verse 11, I'm going to read that to you in the NIV, and then I'm going to read in my paraphrase that's on the screen already. But he says, but whoever hates his brother, we're talking about a Christian who has the sin of hatred toward a fellow Christian, is in the darkness and walks around in darkness. He doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded him. This is a Christian who's hating. He's opposing his fellow Christians. He's still a Christian, but he's walking around in darkness. He's not separated from God, but he's in darkness. And so he says, the way I, I paraphrase it, is the one, but the one who hates his brother lives in darkness. His life is one of stumbling and bumbling around without a clue of what is real and true. No direction in life because that very darkness of hate has blinded him. And that's the condition, our condition, when sin is obvious. And we all can relate to this if you'll just think about your own life right now. When we mess up, and we get involved in sins, we stumble and bumble around. Our lives are all messed up. Here we are, people of the light, walking around with muddled thinking. Our eyes are closed to the truth of the gospel. We're missing the point of life and true living. May have, you may have eternal life, but in your physical existence right now, as you walk through life, you're not really living. Everyone can relate to this. You know what this is like. You're going through life and you're frustrated. You're torn up inside. Something is going on. You feel guilty that you're not the example that you need to be. You feel guilty that you have these feelings inside of you. Oh, you know you have eternal life. You know that God has saved you. But the sins and cares of the world have distracted you. And that's what sin does to the Christian. I'm talking about people who love the Lord, who want to live for him, but they sin. I'm talking about you and me. You feel empty. You feel lost. You feel miserable as a Christian. Surely I am not speaking only to myself. Surely you can relate to this. You, you will, if you drop dead right now, you'd fall right into the hands of Jesus. But your present life is not the life that is truly life. If you fell dead and fell into the hands of Jesus, you'll probably go, Why was, what in the world was I doing? 
Why was I living that way? Why was I thinking that way? This is any way of worldly thinking. We go around like a dark cloud is over our heads. I think my next slide has this. I like that picture. You're just going through life with a dark cloud over your head. Here you are a Christian. You should be affecting the lives of others positively. And this is how you walk through life. Your head down, a dark cloud over you. It affects your life. It affects your thinking, your attitude, your speech. Everything about it is just, it's like this cloud of darkness over you. You're not walking in the realness of the Holy Spirit. You're not walking in the truth of the gospel. And that's what happens when you sin. And I'm talking about any sin. This is what I called earlier on the misdemeanor sins. Oh, we have the big felony sins, but these are the misdemeanor sins. This is what misdemeanor sins do to us. We listen to the voice of the world instead of the word of God. That's our problem. We're listening to everything around us except God's word. Here's some of the voices of the world. CNN, NBC, ABC, CBS, Fox News, Facebook. Those are our guiding lights. I'm just wondering. I'm not asking for a show of hands, okay? Is the first thing you do in the morning turn on the voice of the world? I'm just asking. And you're listening to what the voices of the world are telling you. And they're telling you, they really are telling you how to think. They're telling you how to think. When you come home from work... Do you turn on the voice of the world? Isn't there, wasn't there once a something that was the voice of the world, the voice of America, voice of something, some television, radio or something? Maybe I dreamed it. But that's what it is. You turn on the TV, you turn on the radio. That's not God's word. That is the voice of the world telling you how to think. We're disciples of talk show hosts and media personalities. We imitate the Beatles. Bear Bryant, Kobe Bryant, whoever. That's all I, that's the ones I just threw out. I had more pictures. I just fill up the thing. They are, we are disciples of them. We follow the music of the day, the sports and movie personalities. That's who we try and imitate. And without us realizing it, we've tuned into the voice of Satan rather than the voice of God. No wonder we're in sin. No wonder we walk around with that cloud over our heads. No wonder we think wrong. We're listening to the wrong words. I'm not saying you have to sell your television. I'm not saying Bear Bryant is a bad person. I'm not saying CBS and CNN, you shouldn't watch it. I'm just saying, where's your focus? What's the voice that you're listening to the most? Is it, are these voices drowning out? And I have there the Bible, the Word of God. I think often we do. We let those things happen. God says here, He will give them life. And I think this is speaking of the way God created us to live. How did God create you to live? You know this from experience. You know this from your personal life. There's someone in your life that you did not forgive. The gall and the bitterness just stirred in your soul. 
it rose up, just bubbled up. It affected not only the relationship you have with that person you didn't forgive, it started affecting your, the relationships around you. You were miserable. And you made everyone else miserable. That's called darkness. And then you're convicted of that sin that I should have forgiven and you forgave. Light comes back to your, into your life. And you hear these expressions, I can breathe again. I can breathe again. You're living, you're really living in Christ. You're filled with joy. Because that's the way God made you. That's why you can do that. God, didn't, God did not create you to be in anger and malice and hatred. God created you for joy and love. You see what I'm saying? And yet we as Christians, we still struggle with those other sins and we hang on to them. Sin doesn't re- reflect our family resemblance. We had a lesson on this. We, we are to resemble our father. Our spiritual DNA is godly. That's when God recreated us. He gave us a new spiritual DNA and that's godly. And when you act ungodly, you're living out of your character and who you are. And that's why you're miserable. No wonder you're upset with yourself. No wonder you feel bad. I was going to read both passages, but we don't have time. I'm just going to go through this paraphrase in verse 11 of chapter 3. All those born of God do not sin because implanted in their deepest core is the very DNA of God. That's what the word actually means. They do not have the power or strength or desire for rebellious living for they are children of God. That's how God, you, you know you can relate to that. Children of God know that. That's not the way I was meant to act. That's not the way I was meant to live. And that's why you struggle with that. Ungodly behavior is imitating Satan. We're told to imitate our father. That's who we are. And that's who we became in the new birth. And so we want to put away this sin in our lives. We're going to see how this kind of all wraps together. Chapter five, chapter three, all the way back to the very beginning. But I'm just going to read through verse five through verse eight in the paraphrase to sum it up. He says, but, you know, as an absolute fact that he came to light, that he appeared in our world for the purpose of lifting off of us the terrible weight of sins and removing it from us, taking it far away. And there is no sin in him. Notice how Christ-centric he pulls us into, into this. No one whose life is tied up in him, whose focus is on God, not the world, not those voices, whose focus is on God and his will, has their, as their goal this rebellious life of sin. No one whose life's ambition is self and whose God is their own desire has come to see him or experience a healing relationship with him. Dear ones, don't ever don't let anyone take you down the wrong road in this matter of righteousness and sin. There's two roads, righteousness and sin. And when we say that righteous is living like Jesus, living in love, sin are all the you know what they are, all those little things and big things in our life. If you're living in a right relationship with God, you are righteous according to his righteous character. The one whose life is in rebellion to God's way is of the devil. 
Because from the beginning, rebellion is a path of the devil. The very reason the Son of God came among us was to destroy and to crush all of what the devil set out to do. When we see someone in sin, we don't rejoice in that. We don't say hey, they got it coming to them. They should have known. We warned them. John says, ask God. Pray to them. Beseech God. Ask him. And he will give them life. He'll take that burden off of them. He might use you. He might use someone else. He might use a message. He might use their own personal Bible study. But God will give them life. And that's why we don't sin. That's why when we come into our own lives and we see our own personal sins, that's why we say, oh, I don't want to do that. It's the opposite of who I am in Christ. This is not me. When, when that unforgiveness is bubbling up, say, that's not me. That's not godly. That's, the, that's not my DNA. That's not my character. And that's why we pray for our family when we see them in sin. Because that's not the way family is supposed to act. And so we pray for each other.